You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back uh, to those of you who were here for the first session, and a very extra warm welcome to those of you who uh, joined us just now. Uh, for those of you who, who uh, did that, uh, I can tell you that my name is Andreas, and I'm the artistic director at the House of Literature. And I'm very happy to introduce this panel to you. It's uh, in the context of literary events. I would say it's a kind of a world first uh, world event, in a way. Very happy to have all you guys here. Um, tell me how it ends. It's the kind of a question that a child will ask with sincere interest somewhere uh, in her parents' half-finished story, somewhere over the dinner table. The kind of a question that can be really hard to answer if you happen to end up having to explain any of the kinds of stories that are unfolding in our world today. The kind of stories that I actually find it hard to talk about, even here with you, with a crowd of grown-ups today. Fortunately, we have with us today three outstanding authors who have taken on the difficult and tiresome and really heavy job of trying to find a language to talk about some of the issues at the core of the contemporary, not to mention figure out how to live through them. Issues like the children dying in the Mediterranean, being, the children being separated from their parents at the US-Mexican border, the racism, the open wounds of the past, the kind of stuff that some of us are privileged enough never having to deal with ourselves unless we choose to, whereas others are forced to deal with them every single day in ways that I think it's hard to fathom for someone of, say, my gender, my skin color, my socioeconomic background. Uh, the three authors that we're meeting today are Valeria Luiselli, who was born in Mexico and currently live in the United States. Her first novel, Los Ingravidos, just came out in Norwegian, entitled Divekt Löse, translated by Ingrid Melfall Hafredal. And her book, Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions, has been called the first must-read book of the Trump era. Teju Cole was born in the United States to uh, parents from Nigeria, and amongst many other things, he has taken the photograph that illustrated tonight's conversation in the program catalog, and that he talked about uh, previously in the, in the black paper session, taken at the morgue unit at the medical examiner's office at Pima County, Arizona in 2011. And Adifa Mohammed was born in Somalia and grew up in the United Kingdom. She's the author of two novels, both of which have been translated into Norwegian, Black Mamma Boy and Orchard of Lost Souls, the top the Shellish Lom in Norwegian, and where she uses the migration stories of her parents and the history of Somalia and the British Empire to be a bit reductionist as a raw material. Please give them a warm welcome. Good evening. Thank you, everyone, for turning up tonight. We're hoping to have a very passionate and in-depth discussion about migration, a subject that's touched all of our lives and continues to impact on us. I'd like to start with Valeria and your book, Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions. And very early on, you describe, you volunteer to translate for the unaccompanied minors that were coming in in quite a big wave 
um, under Obama, Obama's presidency. So you volunteer as um, a translator as part of the um, immigration court uh, process. And you describe the process as um, a child is asked questions during the intake interview, which is, and this process is called screening, a term that is as cynical as it is, as it is appropriate. The child, a reel of footage, the translator, interpreter, an obsolete apparatus used to channel that footage. The legal system, a screen, itself too worn out, too filthy and tattered to allow any clarity, any attention to detail. Stories often become generalized, distorted, appear out of focus. I thought that was a very beautiful description of a process that I've seen my family members pass through and distant family members pass through. And um, despite it feeling, seeming almost hopeless in the way that you've described it in that passage, you continue with this um, work. And I wanted you to just talk to us a little bit more about how you became invested in that process. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for being here. And hello. Um, how did I become invested? 2014, I guess, is a good place to start. Um, I don't know if you, if you recall or how, how much this kind of news made it to the side of the ocean. But in 2014, America declared an immigration crisis in, in the border. And it consisted in, um, differently to every other immigration crisis before, consisted in undocumented minors having arrived alone at the border without parents. Between October of the previous year, 2013, and June of that year, 2014, 80,000 kids had arrived alone at the border. Sit with that number a little bit. 80,000 is, is no, no small number. And, and then in the, in the next six months, another 20, uh, thousand um, were, were added to, to, to that to that arrival. There was this sudden surge of arrivals, and that's what that's what prompted the government to call this an immigration crisis. A sudden surge and and an incapacity inside the country to to, to deal with this surge. So what the Obama administration did um, was something quite frankly, inhumane, which was to create something, create a small policy change that wasn't, wasn't very noticed or talked about as all little policy changes aren't, uh, which consisted in creating something called a priority docket in, in court. Now, a, a docket is simply a group of cases in court, and a priority, is, a priority docket is a group of cases that are bumped up in, in line, in for, to, to become first in line, uh, which basically means to, to be handled and released as, as, as soon as possible. Now, in many cases, being a priority docket is, is a good thing, but it wasn't in this scenario, because children who had previously one year to find a lawyer who might help them against a deportation order now, because they were priority, only had 21 days. So, you tell me, which, which child whose parents are most possibly 
undocumented or, or aunts or uncles or whoever they, they have come to live with in the U.S., um, who be belong to, to, to a world within the U.S. where there, there is little information and, and little will to, to help, who, who is going to find uh, a lawyer in 21 days? So basically it was a policy to make sure that, that children could be very swiftly deported back to their, to their countries. And we can talk about why they fled and, and why it, it, it was actually uh, an illegal thing to do uh, by many standards. Uh, the children that arrived in the U.S. in that circumstance were, were looking, were, were seeking asylum. And they have a right to seek asylum um, by, by international law and by, by, by national laws. And however, the government decided to create this docket to, to be able to deport kids more quickly. Now what happened, as, as what also happens with, within the U.S. many times, is, is this wonderful thing that people became organized. In the face of, of this brutally, in, brutally inhumane policy, uh, a group of nonprofits that worked with immigration, but that not, weren't necessarily all occupied with this particular Im immigration group, they came together, they formed a think tank, and, and this happened kind of all over the country. In New York in particular, seven, seven organizations came together, formed a think tank, and came up with something called the, the screening questionnaire, with which they could interview children and determine whether there was a case there or not, a possible case for asylum, and then find a lawyer as quickly as possible for them. And then there was just one missing bit, which was in the, U, in the US, as you may know, there's uh, 60 million Spanish speakers, it's the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. It is also a Hispanic country, although it doesn't really recognize itself as such. Um, but in the U.S., everyone speaks Spanish except lawyers and sometimes and editors. Editors speak editors, editors speak French, yes. <laughs> and uh, and then lawyers. I don't know. Um, so there was a, there, there was this little missing bit there. And what was urgently needed were uh, translators who could translate between Spanish and English. In some cases, of course, uh, between indigenous languages and English, Mixteco, Zapoteco, Quichua, Quechua, it's much harder to find translators that could do that. But Spanish, we were enough, or relatively enough. So I was just basically one of those people that ended up translating in court, and not really translating because there, was an, there were, weren't enough volunteers interviewing the kids, so really we were screeners. And um, I ended up writing a book a year later, after working in court after a year, um, that basically takes the 40 questions of the questionnaire to both offer um, a panorama of what happened, what the kids were fleeing, what happened in their journey, and what happened in court. And at the same time, a kind of x-ray of the immigration system in the US. Through the questions, it's, it's kind of easy to see how the system, how the system works. And can I ask you, were you drawn that very first day you volunteered with your niece? Um, were you drawn to, to, to witness and to take part as a, as a writer? As, a, as an activist, as a mother, as a... What do you think was that first impulse that said, I have to, be, I have to go? I, I guess I would say, m m just as a, 
as a human being. I mean, I, I, I couldn't... When, when I first heard the news, it was in the radio, the children were arriving alone in the border. I, I, I was like, no, this is... A, they're talking about a, a novel or something. I thought of Marcel Schwab mm. and the Children's Crusade. I thought of... What I, I didn't, it was, it was a piece of news that, among the many things that, that keep us in, constant, in a constant state of shock, it was one that shocked me into action. Mm -hmm. um, or at least progressively shocked me into action. Um, so yeah, not, not, not as a writer. And I certainly didn't write anything about the issue for a very long time. It was, it was John Freeman, the editor... Um, who, who kept on pushing me to write about it. And I kept on saying, no, John, I don't understand the legal system well enough. I'm too angry to write anything that's <laughs> worth I reading. I say that to him very regularly as well. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but he always gets away with it, like editors always do, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I ended, up, ended up writing that essay, and, and I'm glad I did. Absolutely. Um, you were invited down to Arizona by an arts organization, Culture Strike, mm. and you write about this in Known and Strange Things. Yeah. And they want to involve creative artists in, the, in immigration policy. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And particularly, you had um, a conversation with a retired nurse, a yeah. white American woman who was volunteering with an organization called Samaritan, yeah. that worked um, with people who'd just been rescued from the desert, who were That's in right. terrible conditions, and they would give them first aid and whatever help they could in that immediate time. And she, you asked her um, to describe the situation with migration in Arizona, and she said, basically, it's a race war. They just don't like the Mexicans. Yeah. And you were taken aback by this. Mm. Um, but do you think that... Do you think that's a true statement in the years that have passed? Hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you all very much for being here to think about this with us. Um, you know, when Valeria said that uh, sometimes you're just too angry to write about, you know, what you're seeing and what you, you know, you're just at a loss for words. So I highly recommend making a soundscape. <laughs> you know, you know uh, get yourself some shakers. Uh, some percussion instruments. <laughs> some throat singing. Yeah, some throat singing. <laughs> Get like a big heavy robe in the middle of your room. You know, you have to cast out some of those devils. Exercise. No, I mean, and I'm, I'm actually quite serious about this. You have to sometimes revert to the very physical and primitive part of yourself so that, you know, these bastards don't completely get you down. And then you'll also have to find a way to write about it because that's, that's what we do. You know, we have to, uh, we do language. And when I went down uh, to Arizona, which was a state I hadn't been to, and we got a pretty good tour of what was going on down there uh, in late 2011, um, It's a heavy sigh. Well, I mean, gosh, it's because it's, it's, in, it's incredible how much cruelty we're able to do in the name of order, decorum, the government. This is how we need to do this. How much enmity we're able to create in our hearts towards other human beings. And then out of sight, out of mind. That was a very important trip for me because... 
I'm an American. I was born there. I grew up in Nigeria, but I had been back in the U.S. since I finished high school. And I was a U.S. citizen. But each one of us who is a citizen of a place ends up defining our citizenship. So, you know, we tend to define it in rather narrow ways, and we figure out who our people are, what our tribe is. And for the most part, I was like an East Coast black dude, you know? <laughs> I mean, I would sometimes listen to Tupac, <laughs> but for the most part, I was an East Coast <laughs> rap game kind of dude. Um, and then you go to the border and you have to ask, what does this have to do with me? I'm not Mexican, I'm not Tohono Ohodam, I'm not a white farmer in Sonora, Arizona, you know. But this is the U.S., this is our policy, this is our country. And it just made visible to me a number of things I had not properly thought about as being constituent um, of my citizenship and of falling under the purview of my citizenly responsibility to think about. And so after that visit, I went back home. Well, we're not required to write anything or anything. I went back home, and for two weeks, I couldn't think about anything else. It was just bothering me. It was just poking at me. And so... Was there own, a particular aspect that was... Everything about everything. it. I just could not... You know, I went down there. I was still pretty much... You know, it's 2011. I was still pretty much an Obama supporter. I went out there, and I saw these people who were criticizing him quite harshly. And I thought, well, yeah, but you don't know what he has to deal with the Congress. I made all the excuses. But two weeks later, I flew back to Arizona because I just had to find out more, you know. And, um, and I, I talked to uh, Coalición Derechos Humanos. I talked to organizations like No More Deaths. I talked to organizations that were putting water in. And I tried to talk to Border Patrol. They wouldn't talk to me. They just kept me waiting. I went to the court. I talked to the judges, you know. Is that when you to, went to the morgue as what? well? Is that when you went to the and morgue? And that's when I went to the morgue, you know. Um, uh, the, county medic, uh, the county medical examiner is the doctor who's basically responsible in any given county for things like suspicious deaths and, and things like that. You know, arson, murder, and everything. And if you're in Arizona, then it's also like bodies that have been found. Every time somebody's body's found, the county medical examiner has to deal with it. And even within the purview of his government job, he was sort of st he was a a humane and responsible person who was working closely with his human rights organizations, saying, you know, who has called you to say that their relative is missing? You know, and then we have DNA testing that we can do. You know, what are the tattoos? What are the uh, you know? teeth, mm. think all these identifying things. So, uh, you know, I went to that, and, and truly, to see rows and rows of human bodies that are not claimed, you know, somebody's sister, somebody's brother, somebody's mother, somebody's child. Mm. Um, somebody lives an entire life and then dies in the desert, and then their body's never found. And scattered, often scattered. Scattered, anim animals, you know, Vultures, coyotes, you know. Um, 
So I went down there and I just sort of investigated it like a magazine story. I, I had all these conversations and Harper's wanted to run it. And then, it's, then I said, well, no. <laughs> I just didn't want to write it as a magazine story. Um, so I ended, up I ended up writing it up at, like a magazine story, um, but in generally short sentences, but with all the information present. And then I pretty much released it one sentence at a time on Twitter. Um, and, then, and that's how it reached its audience. I mean, the way I released it was actually a bit more complex than that because I set up like 12 different accounts and I, I had it sort of tweeting in an interweaving way. Um, and did you mention on Twitter as well about the woman, uh, the nurse's comment? About oh, yeah, it? absolutely. And what was right. the response? So, well, I mean, the thing with this lady is that I, she had lived her career as a, you know, a blonde-haired, white American woman working as a nurse in Minnesota, and like many of these people, when they retire and they get a bit older, they want to go somewhere warm. So she moved to Arizona. Um, and she struck me as sort of like, you know, liberal, you know, a little bit, I mean, not a, not a leftist activist by any means. And I'd been in America long enough to know that white people in America are very measured with their words when it comes to race. Um, and so when she said, well, it's a race war. They just, they just hate these people and they, just, they don't mind seeing them die. And I said, wow, you'd really put it that way. She's like, what else could it be? You know, and, and I think that's indicative of some of the truth that needs to be said. You know, um, for example, um, a lot of Americans think that the war on Iraq was wrong, but they don't think it was racist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a dehumanization, and, and so, a complete well, dehumanization. Yeah, well, yeah, but after a while, you just start noticing whose life is disposable and, you know, and who can die, you know, and whose death is okay. And it tracks very closely to race. race. Um, so that underlies a lot, a lot of it, I, I do think, you know. Um, and you we, think we have profoundly racist policies. Yes, and I think... Maybe we had become inured to that. We'd, be, we'd kind of got used to that. And one of the things that made it shocking was the treatment of children, mm. especially very young children. And again, in um, Tell Me How It Ends, you mentioned in, in 2015 there was a case where unaccompanied minors were given adult doses of the hepatitis A vaccine and became seriously ill and had to be hospitalised after this. And there was a suit against the... The, go the county government that did this. Um, what do you think childhood means to someone in the situations that you have met them in? So the children that are applying for asylum. And um, are they, when does their childhood end? Is it the minute they leave home? Is it somewhere mm. in the process? Is it when they realize how they're perceived as not children anymore? Mm. It's a very good question. I don't know if I have uh, a good answer. Um, let, let me contextualize a bit so, so that, so that our, our, the people listening to this conversation know, so you guys know re really like what, what this is part of, no? this people getting vaccines, why, where. Um, basically, when a child arrives in the border, uh, he or she is left there by the coyote who brought 
uh, him, her, or a group, usually a group of children, from mostly the Northern Triangle, which is the three countries in Central, in the, in the north of Central America, Salvador, Honduras, and, and Guatemala. And a coyote would, will take a child from there, having been paid by some relative, most probably. It costs $7,000 to bring a boy over, and 5,000 to bring a girl. Um, that's a few years ago. Imagine, imagine then as well the kind of debts that a family has to get into in order to bring a child uh, who is in, in, whose life is in danger and therefore needs to be brought over um, by a coyote. So well, let's, let's go back to the, the journey itself. is from the Northern Triangle, across Mexico, uh, mostly on La Bestia, on, on a series of train lines that are not passenger trains, but freight trains uh, atop which people travel. Very dangerous trains because they derail constantly or they are attacked by narco, narco gangs or the police or, or the military. Um, so finally, if a child actually makes it to the border, which is not an easy thing to do, uh, many, many, many people die along the way, many people are kidnapped along the way. Um, but if a child makes it to the border, then the coyote will leave them there, and that child will need to find as quickly as possible a border patrol agent who, who they can then turn themselves into. Uh, and it's many of the kids that I, that I spoke to in court would tell me that one of the, the, one of the roughest parts of the way was having arrived and not finding a policeman to catch you. <laughs> because what, what that meant, not, not being caught, meant immediately uh, the peril of, of death, of, of dying in the desert and, and, and becoming one of these bodies in, Pima, in the Pima County morgue. Um, by the way, this is just a side, side comment, mm. We were, Chiji and I were just talking. There's a very interesting resource that I advise you all to, to look at, which is a series of, of maps, custom maps of deaths in the desert. So the, 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 the organization that makes them is called Humane Borders. Is it? Mm. Humane Borders. And you can see who has died where in the desert. These are people that have been found and whose IDs have been found with them or that they have been identified by some other means. Or you can type in the name uh, Carlos Rodriguez and a dot appears in the desert and there's information. Uh, he died of hyperthermia or of a blunt injury or uh, whatever. Um, anyway, so the kids, the kids when they arrive need to immediately find a policeman. Sometimes it is immediate. Other times it takes a day or so. The kids, I, I spoke to some kids that had been wandering around one entire day in the desert, thinking that was it. Um, once they turn themselves into Border Patrol, Border Patrol then puts kids away in a detention space that is colloquially called the icebox. Uh, and it's called the icebox, or in Spanish, yelera, because it's run by ICE, Immigration and Custom Enforcement. Um, and it's also very, very cold. It's a, a kind of refrigerator where they put m migrant bodies in. And you write um, that actually, it's like as if they don't want the foreign meat to go bad. Yeah, it's like this, this kind of hy hygienic thing almost, right? And there is where kids receive 
these series of vaccinations, um, often indiscriminately. I, I spoke to a woman some time ago who said that her kid had been vaccinated so many times in the arms in a single go that she couldn't move her arms. Uh, so there's this brutality, you know, this institutionalized, legal, political violence being exercised constantly on migrant bodies and on brown bodies. We do have to say it that way. It's, it's, it is absolutely a racial thing, right? Um, I was, yeah, there you go. So I was, I was just wondering whether we could sort of zoom, up, zoom back a little bit and, and, and think a little bit about this question of, of a crisis, you know. Yeah, uh, this I word to that keeps earlier. occurring, right? You know, it's a crisis, an immigration crisis, and Europe has, in the past few years, really loved that word as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a crisis, it's a migrant crisis, and one of you know one of the questions I like to ask is a crisis for whom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's particular. I mean, that that is a, a major question always, and in this particular case, it's an important question because there's, there's, there's two things in there. First of all, media bombarded us with the notion of crisis, second with the notion of a migrant crisis, mm-hmm. thus shining light away from the fact that the kids that were coming into the U.S. were seeking asylum and had a right to. So they are yeah. in, in, legal, in, a, in legal categories, not migrants, but refugees. Right. And a, a government has to have a completely different uh, responsibility, political responsibility with a refugee than with a migrant, right? right. You have to right. incorporate uh, through a series of steps a refugee. And second, crisis, I mean, naturally, uh, whoever termed it the crisis was thinking only of the institutions within the U.S. who were having to deal with a surge. Right. The crisis did not refer to the critical situation from which children were fleeing, yeah. had just passed through in Mexico, and had arrived too. I mean, this is why it's, it's a, an important ethical question to not use those words in a kind of, you know... Easy way. Easy and a careless way. I yes. mean, there is some kind of crisis, but it's a crisis in the lives of the people who are having to make this journey, or having to travel in these ways. But some very important work is being done by the idea that the crisis is elsewhere. The crisis is in, you know, the poor little, whatever, town yeah. in Wisconsin that has to receive visitors. Or, well, in the UK. Or, the, or you know, you know the, 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 the city in France yeah. where people arrive, or whatever. That that's where the crisis is. Now, if you, if you can term your inconvenience, your mild inconvenience a crisis, it only helps completely erase the humanity of the person who's in crisis, and then you can prioritize whatever is going to help you. I mean, I do want to connect yes. all this migratude into one. Yeah, and um, I agree that it, it, you know, it, can, say... it can really help you ab- abolish them as a human being. But then if you have somewhere like the UK where um, it's, I think there's a real, it's an island mentality partly, but it's also a question of um, the crisis that's often described is in the NHS because there's too many foreign mothers having children in the hospitals mm-hmm. or too many children that don't speak English coming into the schools mm-hmm. or the councils not being able to house 
decent working mm-hmm. in British people because there's too many foreigners. So it's as if there's, there's only so much on the table and the crisis is that other people will come and snatch it off the table. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's always been the narrative in the UK from when there was five <laughs> black people living in the UK in 1905 oh. or something like yeah. that. So it's something very, very deeply ingrained. And the more people there are, the more it becomes inflamed and the more... Um, yeah. let, me pick, let me pick up from mm-hmm. there, if, if you let me, because it's, it's really important, um, and I'm glad we're arriving here in the conversation. One of the aspects that, that, that kind of gets um, very, very, very much ignored in the news about what actually happens later to people who are in a deportation limbo mm-hmm. um, is, is the situation of mass immigration detention space, mass incarceration mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of immigrant, of immigrant mm-hmm. people, uh, which is, by the way, not disconnected, but rather very much part or, or exactly the same situation as the mass incarceration of African Americans in the U.S. There's a huge, huge industrial complex mm-hmm. system uh, that is very lucrative. Um, by the way, a child is more... Is makes uh, you make more money with a child with a child's body in a in a prison per day than with an adult body. So it's that's another kind of sinister thing to oh, think. Oh, we've got of. to be explicit about that. What she means is that many prisons in the U.S. are private. No, most they're, of them they're are privately private. run yeah. and they're businesses. And if you can get people to fill your prisons, the government will give you money per prisoner. For, and you, per, and, per, per and, you ma- and you make more money if you I, have children. The, the, quota, the quota for immigration detention spaces, the, beds, the number of beds that have to be occupied per day in the U.S. in a detention space, take a wild guess. How many do you think? How many beds? Across the U.S.? Yeah, federal. <laughs> no? <laughs> How many well, hundreds of thousands? And th- 34,000, okay. 34,000 every, yeah. every day. So that you have a situation where somebody's like, well, actually, the demand has slightly fallen in this area. We're going to close this prison. Yeah. People will protest. They'll say, you can't close that prison. It's making a lot of money in this community, or we need the jobs. What am I going to do? I mean, we, it's, it's a moral crisis. It's an ethical crisis. It is. And the big, big issue is when you declare a crisis... Right, uh, these there are too many brown bodies, too many black bodies uh, in our society, creating crime, creating, uh, bringing rapists, uh, whatever it is that the forms of violence that supposedly brown and black bodies bring to white societies. Then the next step is very easy. Oh, let, let, you can incarcerate them, right? I mean, you deport them. But the truth is that in the best case scenario, people get deported. People don't get deported. They drift uh, within the system. They drift in a limbo for indefinite amount of time from immigration detention spaces into federal jails. Well, I mean, there's even this idea that the declarations you can make about certain individuals, certain kinds of people, those people coming from Honduras, right? And then you say, the moment somebody like Donald Trump says, those animals, that, that is doing very specific work, mm. right? He's creating a state of exception, Right mm-hmm. to use Agamben's idea. The crisis is right? a state of exception. They are outside the normalcy of being a human being. What, what happens to people who are outside what is normal for a human being? They can be killed. 
they can they can die. Their their lives literally don't matter. So that when an ICE agent shoots somebody in the head, it's fine. When uh, somebody is driven to despair and hangs himself in his cell, it's fine. As a Fox News person said with regards to this most recent situation of kids being separated, he said, okay, let's, let's stop kidding ourselves. Let's not pretend as if these are not our kids, okay? These are not, our, I mean, these are not American kids from Iowa. Is this the womp womp guy? No, 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 this was somebody else. Okay. And, and I thought that was so well expressed. He said, these are not American kids from Iowa. Because it was just another contribution to this idea that they're not truly human. So please, let's not come over here with all our concern. You know, why are you acting like they're human? (laughs) You know? But really, even the people who are behind the policy who cannot explicitly state it, and I think exactly the same thing happens in Europe, if you seriously take the responsibility that these are human beings and you can include that in the language, and that they're not essentially other to you. They're not illegal. No, that's then, you know, what does that mean? You know, if you take it seriously that they're human beings, your behavior will change. Um, and I feel that this actually brings us back to... <coughs> I'm, I'm going to be a bit radical here. I'm going to have to be arrested after this is over. Um, but the idea of citizenship, who belongs, when you say our country, when you say somebody's a foreigner, what do these words but actually then, but you're mean? You're also looking at from the host country's perspective. And I'm, I'm intrigued also by what the migrant thinks. And um, there's a term in Somali called bufis, which is um, uh, an affliction, really, mm. a psychological one, which happens to people in um, refugee camps, such as Dadaab in Kenya, once mm. they've been living there for a long time. And their dream, their real life, is when they are resettled to Australia, Canada, wherever mm-hmm. it might be. So their, their life in Dadaab is almost not real. Mm-hmm. And the process of resettlement takes years and for the ones that were waiting and in process of being resettled in the US that's now over because Somalis ethnic Somalis are not mm-hmm. allowed to to enter the US on those visas so um, it leads to suicides it leads to depression mm-hmm. it leads to a whole range of um, psychological issues and for the ones that do make it and there's an idea that everyone is very very desperate the people that manage to get into Europe are very very desperate Sometimes they're not. I go to Hargeisa and there are people that live very comfortable lives, mm-hmm. ordinary lives, but they also make this journey, sacrificing mm-hmm. their, their finances as well as their, their bodies to make this journey. And I always wonder when they get here, what do they find? What do they feel? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes the narrative around migration is uh, we, have to, we have to accept people because they're running away from the most awful things that you can never mm-hmm. even imagine. But that doesn't necessarily match up to the reality of the people mm-hmm. that are coming into the country. Mm-hmm. So how do we accept that someone wants to be part of a community that doesn't want to be, doesn't want to absorb them? Well, in America, that's terrible. No? That's we were t- talking about that yesterday, perhaps mm-hmm. the the good immigrant. Right. Uh, you you right. have to there. There is a like a kind of uh, myth that goes in, in in kind of all directions. If you immigrate to America. You have to demonstrate that you you deserve it. That you that, yeah that that you des- that you merit it, but also that you you want to be American in that definition of 
whatever American is. No? And um, it's very, I think there's, it's much more acute, say, in the US, where there is something to buy into. I don't think there is a, a parallel thing you can buy into in the UK. Well, I mean, I think we just simply have to think about what forms of authority are bearing themselves down on people's lives. And if you're under somebody's authority, a governmental, a state level of authority, if you can be at a border and somebody actually has the power or the uh, ability to arrest you or to kill you or to incarcerate you or to push you uh, away, then you're under that person's power. But that's not being part of a community. Well, even before we get to community, I, I want us to think about this, how all those of us who are under a common sovereign are in a common condition. I'm not really interested anymore in who's a citizen of where. I am interested in the fact that, in a sense, even if you think about the territory of, of the US, regardless of what your paperwork says, we're all under the same sovereign authority. We're all citizens of that space. So that the question then becomes, why are you treating my fellow citizens that way? Because they are not a citizen. Because they haven't well, been but, but they, they are citizens. We, we're going to have to find a way to sort of redefine that. But then because you can't be, I don't think anyone is suggesting that you become a citizen on arrival, of, because I, I'm not a citizen of Oslo while I'm here, so... Well, in, in fact, in the <laughs> I, I radical totally. sense I'm suggesting, <laughs> mm -hmm. you actually are. You're subject to the laws here. You're drinking the water here. If something happens to you and you have to go to the hospital, you go to the hospital here. You, there are things that you can do in the UK that you can't do here, and vice versa. Uh, so you're under the authority of this particular state, and your rights should not be less than that of anybody else who's here right now. Do on, we agree on, with that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's... Yes, some people are thinking, oh, it's a little bit impractical, but I don't actually <laughs> care about what's practical. I want us to think about what world we're going to make. You know, there's going to be a hell of a lot of migration. You know, they had a dry summer here. <laughs> that will make people come. Well, I mean... <laughs> You know, unfortunately, it's a, it's a tragic story, but the story of the next 50 years is that a lot, a hell of a lot of people are going to be moving to a hell of a lot of places. And if we're still doing the sort of this pokey, prove your Norwegian-ness, or, you know, you stand in line and fill out some kind of thing so that we can treat you like a human being when you come to the U.S., or, you know, we're putting you to an ice box because, you know, your color... This cannot be our future, you know. We, we really need to re-understand what our, our, our debts to each other are. And those, the debts, what we owe each other, has everything to do with the fact that we're functioning under the same authorities, you know. Yes. Um, and, and this even extends beyond the borders because policy is precisely why kids and families are moving from El Salvador and uh, Guatemala and Honduras. And that policy is American policy. Well, let me, let me pick up from there, Teju, because that's, I think what you're saying is important and deserves um, an, an example, right? Uh, so that we can land it. Um, and we've been talking about, in particular in this, in this session, 
Latin American kids, Central American kids from the Northern Triangle who, who, who have to leave Central America. And some of you might be asking yourselves, well, what do they flee? Why? And why are they coming to America? Every story is a different story, of course. But uh, within that, there are, of course, uh, many, many, many patterns and many, many things that are repeated. The, the children who flee the, central, the Northern Triangle basically flee gang persecution and gang violence. The gangs in particular that they're fleeing are the MS-13 and Barrio 18, Barrio 18. Uh, two brutally, brutally violent gangs uh, to which, for example, you enter once you have killed or tortured someone uh, within which women have no place but are... There, there's no MS-13 woman but women are used as a kind of pass-around uh, pass girlfriends. They call them jainas. Um, and this happens since a girl is 10 years old, right? So if, if you're 10 years old and a MS-13 guy shows up at your door and you're a boy, and he says, today you have to stand guard in the, in the street corner with his gun uh, to make sure that while we do our operation, there's no police, no police coming. And if the boy says no, that boy's relative, mother, father, grand, grandparent, whoever may, 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 be, um, killed. may be killed or tortured or whatever, other horrible possibilities. And if, uh, or he or she may lose his life. So fleeing is the only, is the only way out. What else do you have? Um, so, so children flee. They, they flee f for their lives, of course. Now, these gangs that Trump, as well, not long ago, uh, called Central American gangs that are uh, flooding across the border or something like that. They're not. They are. I mean, they are in Central America now, but they were born in they were born in L.A. Uh, in the in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, what had happened was, Ameri uh, to, to tie it back to American policy, uh, in, the, in the 1970s there was violent social struggle in, let's say one of the three examples, El Salvador, um, where there was a very brutal uh, military government forming uh, and a very, and a left wing that was contesting and battling against this, 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 this possible government. America, the Reagan administration, injected millions and millions of dollars uh, into El Salvador, trained the, this militarized government, and they, of course, took power and were brutal and massacred their own population, so much so that one-fifth of the country had to flee. Um, and they fled to different places in the world. Probably Norway, some of them. I don't, I don't know if you, you... I think there is a Salvadoran population. Um, one of the countries also that took them back was the U.S. And sorry, we fucked up. Uh, we'll take some of you in. And the Salvadorans that arrived in L.A. arrived in an L.A. that was war on drugs moment, Reagan, and a huge marginalized population of M Mexican, Chicanos, African Americans, etc., who had their street gangs and who, ha who, who, behave, who had these, these, these pockets of belonging uh, where they felt protected, where they were protected. And it was in that space that the MS-13 and Barrio 18 formed. 
Then, much later, they were deported because, oh, these are, we have a problem, Houston, let's just send them back. Mm-hmm. And when they sent them back, what happened was that, like a cancer, it, they kind of metastasized. Now they weren't only in L.A. concentrated, but in L.A. still, all over the U.S., kind of, in Mexico with the drug lords and narco problems of, of the territory itself, and then back in El Salvador and Guatemala and, and Honduras. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, a policy that creates you know, this kind of circle, circular nightmare that now mm-hmm. these children are fleeing from. And they're, but they're fleeing, and many times they arrive in the U.S. and just to find that there's MS-13 in the U.S. too. So they can't, it's like a... It's a borderless. It's a, yeah, it's a borderless. Absolutely. But you have to think of the, the, the shared responsibility of our countries, the U.S., Mexico, and the, and the, and the Northern Triangle, as a region that has, com- has completely mm-hmm. messed up but in many ways. But do you think there's any appetite at all to understand it in that way, with the rise no. of far-right parties across the world? There it's not, seems it's to not be just far-right, I think, just the ordinary, left as well, yeah. ordinary people in the richer countries... The have, Obama administration have a like nice that. story they've told themselves about what um, their prosperity and their safety, what, where it comes from, and uh, they've told themselves this story, and it has a lot to do with, of course, how hardworking and peaceful they are in their heart, and um, how they've, fragile they've, it is. they've saved their money and they've built up. So why should these people come over now? On a philosophical level. You could make the argument when another human being shows up in your space in pure desperation, a human being that you actually don't owe anything to, it should not be hard to make the philosophical argument that you should be humane and save a life, right? It's the oldest precept in any religious tradition. Save a life when you can. Okay, if, even if this person had nothing to do with you. But God made it even easier for us because we don't have to be abstractly philosophical. It's, it's never a stranger. It's always somebody that has everything to do with us. In the U.S., it's people whose policy, whose American policy has made their country what it is, and then they show up. And then we treat them like a stranger and say we have no responsibility. In the UK, it's people who were, you know, under the people Anglophone like my, my parents empire, were born in the empire. Right? Um, in, in France, it's people who were under the French empire. You know, uh, Norway has war refugees. Norway exports weapons, even though it tells itself stories about not having an imperial past. You know? Um, but really, it's... It, it's almost as if circumstances have conspired to make it ethically straight for us, straightforward for us to understand yeah. that this is already our responsibility, even if it was a stranger. But in fact, it's not a stranger. It is a crisis we continue to have a hand in, and a crisis that we, on this side, are suffering as a result of. And I think you know. that's the important argument because you, you, you can try to, you can write a powerful book or uh, record a powerful sound piece about immigration and, 
and break a bunch of people's hearts with the stories that you tell. Mm. And then what? People felt the empathy good. Mm -hmm. no? oh, good, good, mm -hmm. I can feel empathy. Um, and then what? No? And, and we can't expect that everyone will feel empathy. Mm -hmm. um, but but the, his, the, the argument that has to do with a philosophical, if you want to put mm. it that way, or historical mm. responsibility uh, is quite uncontestable. It, it, right. it just is It's what like, it is. we did this. So, yeah. Oh, why, why did this happen to them? Right? Why did, how could that happen to them? What if we flip that around and say, how could this happen to us? Well, I'd love to jump in there because actually you are, we are all migrants. All three of us are migrants. And, um, I actually, I'm not. Well, he's gringo. You were <laughs> somewhere in the middle. I was born in Michigan. <coughs> and then wow. spent your childhood in Nigeria and then went back. So you've experienced migration. I was migration. a migrant to Nigeria for a brief moment. Uh -huh. That's true. <laughs> then I went back home. And you spent the last eight weeks outside of the U.S. This, this year, right? This summer? Listen, when home gets a bit hot... <laughs> you have to... <laughs> You have to leave, yeah. and so you, you arrive in Europe, and you felt that you, it was good to get away from the sense that you were, in a war, you were on a war footing, and your Ab friends are on a war footing absolutely. in the US. Absolutely. And I think you've, you mentioned a similar kind of fear and stress and tension when you're in the US. So... Um, well, you can see where I'm going with this. At the end of the day, I'm just going to say, why do we have borders at all? Yep, but before we get to that, um, <laughs> I want to ask you, you wrote about the West African peddlers that you met or saw in Rome, yeah. in Angels, in yeah. the essay Angels, yeah. and how angels they almost, exactly, Angels in Winter, they almost turned into angels as they were fleeing the police with yeah. the sacks of bags <laughs> on their shoulders. Yeah. Um, and how do you, first of all, um, how do you move in the body that you have in Europe, where there's so much hostility aimed at African people, people of African descent, especially the men. So when you're traveling through Switzerland, through Italy, through Norway, what are your experiences? Yeah. I mean, there is sort of the general experience of being seen as other. Um, and for me, that's always sort of, especially in recent years, very much in balance with my affect and presentation, which reads also differently mm -hmm. to, to Europeans. I don't, I don't necessarily look like somebody who's about to in, invade their country or you know, take right. over or something. You know? I, I just look like a posh visitor. <laughs> you know? And so very often people are fine with that. I mean, there's definitely hostility, um, but it's not the majority of my of contact my, of my of my experience. Mm. But I think that every body's body and every body's selfhood, especially every body that is different from ours, is a reminder of something. You know, and again, I go back to this idea of the stranger. Mm. You know. Uh, Toni Morrison talks about the ripple of alarm that we feel when we encounter the stranger. And that ripple of alarm is because we recognize the stranger. You know, you see someone and an unvocalized, an unexpressed part of, your, of yourself says, I'm in there. And then you panic because you think, okay, so now what do I, oh, if I'm in there, 
what's my responsibility? And that's where a lot of the hostility comes from because those who don't look like us remind us that they are actually us. Um, and there are things that can disguise that, you know, I can put on a fancy hat and talk about Beethoven, and that defers the question, but at the end of the day, you know, the policeman who's given hot pursuit is not going to stop and ask about my knowledge of Beethoven, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's always that danger lurking around this sort of otherness. And there are places in Europe, certain small towns, certain cities actually, that I simply will not go to because I know how much more elevated my risk mm -hmm. would mm -hmm. be there. But for the, for largely my concern is not for myself because I know the various things that protect me. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, for, for instance, at the moment, I think I do think that... Um, Islamophobia is much more, more acute. acute and immediate and profound than yeah. I actually had a, a Belgian fr friend tell me recently, like, oh, you know, Belgium is very open. We like the blacks. You know, my, my son dated a black girl. The problem is the Muslims. I mean, these people uh -huh. are terrible. And if you're and, black and, and Muslim... And he was telling me this <laughs> as a gesture of saying... Your friend and I trust you, and I feel I can tell you the truth. Yes, wow. and this, yeah. was, this was a lefty liberal guy. And again, it's it's a very wow. old um, trope. I I'll be talking about Claude McKay on the weekend, and um, he begins home to Harlem with a description of a black sailor, a black American sailor, mm -hmm. and his distance from the Arab or pot potentially Somali sailors. And the British uh, crew say, "You're all right. You're one of us. You're not one of those." jabbering coolies right. and this division of who is us and who isn't has always been shifting like that but yeah. I'd quickly like to end before we move to questions with you Valeria and talk about that that sense of alarm and peril and when do you feel it in the US and mm. when do you not feel it I, I always did not feel it and something really did change um, as much as I I make the case that and repeat it every time that it, it is, it's not the Trump administration that we have to worry about, but something deeper and deeper, much deeper in grind in the, in the, in the culture mm -hmm. that can just flourish easily when, mm -hmm. when a guy like this comes to power. As much as I say that, and, I, and, and, and the book that I wrote, Tell Me How It Ends, is about the Obama administration the, and the atrocities committed then, something did change in the mm -hmm. quality of the air um, in the Trump era. And um, I think that people who silenced their own feelings of, of disgust towards others, people who, who silenced their own feelings of, uh, of superiority versus that other who is black or brown or Muslim or now feel entitled to not silence that and mm -hmm. exteriorize it and sometimes quite violently. Mm -hmm. um, and yesterday, I mean, I'm sorry if, you, if any of you were here yesterday and heard me say this yesterday, but um, it's almost like a therapy to say it over and over again for me. <laughs> um, I, I, I never thought, one, one never thinks that peril can come to you. You were saying just now, no, 
I'm okay. Right. You you actually don't know when oh, you no, I when know when, that, when you're when you stop being okay like absolutely and um, it happens very suddenly it happens very suddenly and it yeah. like it, it almost happens in retrospect right yeah and I am, I mean I I teach in a public in a in a private university in Long Island where, where there's a lot of um, conflict between police and immigration a lot of ICE raids but also a lot of uh, brutality. Uh, of police against the population of that zone, and um, I work with with kids that um, that have migrated. Some of them who are like in in the brink of maybe joining a gang or not. And I always thought, you know, I know I'm, I know I'm getting into like um, dangerous places sometimes with some of these mm-hmm. kids. I I always thought, well, no, I have to be careful. And all of a sudden, Trump era, I write I wrote an article in the Times. Uh, two or three months ago, about children translating the Quixote. It's a really nerdy article. It's not even uh, a contentious article. It's quite a nerdy article. But as a result of that article, I started getting threats in my in my Hofstra in my university email. Some of them like bureaucratic threats, and others more violent and uh-huh. death threats. And so I just forwarded everything to the to the dean of the university. Just. Just so he knew yeah. what was going on, and and not long ago, he called me. He said he, I needed to go to a meeting with the Nassau Police Department, Public Safety, and the university, and him to figure out the the security protocol that's going to be placed uh, for me when I'm on campus. And uh, I said, "What? You're crazy?" Um, he said, "No, I, we, it's for your safety. We advise that you teach in a secure access classroom." Uh, that people don't know your whereabouts on campus when you're here. So I thought, damn it. Like, mm. I mean, I don't think some crazy Trump supporting MAGA is going to come kill me, but I'm going to have to like, do the theater of this. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to like, be a player in, the act, in, this, in this act of, um, of um, national paranoia. And that's that's that that kind of thing does chip away at me, you know. I, I have. And even started. more annoying now, you can't skip any classes because I'm really worried about <laughs> that because I have. The cops are going to say where I have. Was. I have a lot of trips. I was planning to have like <laughs> yeah. substitutes, activities, yeah. museum. No, no, no. Yeah. The cops are going to be worried about <laughs> yeah, not getting there. She's not pain. here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Andreas, and everyone at the Oslo Literature House. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.